G'day listeners, you're probably thinking, that's not David or Tim's voice, and you'd be right. My name is Lucas Day, and after drinking and chatting to the lads for the episode titled, Creating is a Matter of Passion, Not Time, the time has come for me to release my new single, End of the Day. Head to your favourite music streaming service and search Lucas Day, or go to lucasdaymusic.com for more info. Enjoy the episode. You would enter that game knowing that you have the risk of losing, but it's that enjoyment. Just like if you were going to play a bit of backyard footy, you know that you could break mm. your arm at the same time. You can even leave damaged from performing art that goes wrong. Yes, And so I hear what you're saying. I still am held to account by that saying by J.S. Mule because I never want to be that sneering looking down your nose kind of critic or aficionado of of art that would deny the fact that someone could watch Australia's Got Talent and find that it fills a void in their life. It gives them joy. David, a cracking good morning to you. How are you? It, it is a cracking good morning. We've got lovely spring weather. I've got a big pink coffee cup that's half full of coffee. And we've got a guest who I don't even remember how many times I've been on his podcast now. Uh, four, I reckon. Four. <laughs> well, yes, Love it every time. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining us, Steve Davis. My pleasure. Great being here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're having. I uh, already cannot wipe the smile off my face. So Now, listeners, if you don't regularly listen to Blind Drunk, go and listen to Blind Drunk because the episode with Steve Davis and Nigel Dobson was very, very entertaining and informative. Mm. It was the first time where we thought a Blind Drunk episode should probably also be a Blind Insights episode. Mm -hmm. We just didn't get around to doing anything about it, but we might have to revisit that. Yes. Are we talking about the same episode? Yeah, so okay. it was an excellent episode. <laughs> it was great fun. It was lovely on the in the square, fair mm, and square, yeah, fair and mm. square. And the great thing is, we turned the recording off before we started talking about your new car. Yes, and exactly. Nigel started giving you shit about <laughs> having bought a Camry, <laughs> hybrid Camry, hybrid. Thank mm, you. Mm. Yeah, well, see, that's how the shit started. <laughs> now we could digress, because digressing is so easy when it's Steve and I. We just go from whatever weird tangent. Actually, can I ask you? No, sorry. I really do have to address this. Do do the people at the Beta Burwood know that you drive a hybrid? Uh, not until about ten seconds ago, Tim. Oh, no, no, I, I won't put it in the final <laughs> recording. No, I'm proud. I, I don't care. I will okay. stare that down. There are things in my life that I just have to admit. You know, mm. I have already told you guys I do like listening to my voice from a years mm. of working in radio, and it's terrible. And I shouldn't be saying that publicly. It's a character flaw, but I have to just own it. And I love that I drive a hybrid. You know, it's like so. If you can talk to yourself while driving your hybrid, which I do. It's going pretty well. Well, I'm currently rehearsing my comedy quiet. set. I'm doing comedy ah. again next week, and I'm rehearsing that as I drive along. So there you go. I, I'm ticking all those boxes. Three boxes, one activity. Yes. <laughs> now, that's what proper multitasking should look like. <laughs> yes. Now, listeners, realise we're now probably three minutes in, and you have no idea what the topic for today is. No. L let's, let's at least try and start on the topic, even if we drift. Okay. Tim and I, a very long time ago, like, maybe even more than a year when the podcast was a very wee little new podcast, maybe even with less than 10 episodes. We thought 
we wanted to do an episode about why are the arts important. And we knew it was something we really wanted to do and we had no idea who to get on as the guest because we thought, well, how do we get one person to summarise the importance of the arts in a way that is more inclusive than it is exclusive for the particular art form they're into? And then when we were recording with Steve and Nigel at Fair and Square, it dawned on us, ha-ha, Steve's the man because he understands and loves the arts from so many perspectives and has perhaps even more eclectic a mind than me that bounces in even more direction than mine. (laughs) But as we were talking about before we turned the mics on, when you get a pile of information, you start seeing a pattern. And we thought, this is a way to kind of talk about why the arts are important without talking specifically about any one form or field. So Steve, where would you like to begin, do you think? Well, I like where you've started us, actually, about if you imagine you've opened a a jigsaw box and you've thrown all the pieces on the table and there's a mass in front of you and you know there's a, a hole that it will eventually become. The arts is this act, but not as strict, not as tightly held as a, a jigsaw. I think if I go right back to my early exposure to arts proper, <laughs> well, you might say that I was in a melodrama in grade seven. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Which was great fun because to me that is one of the joyful expressions of art where everyone's just there for a good time. You've got some of the disciplines of holding attention and interplay between characters and dialogue, but the audience is right there. There's no pretense. It's all pure joy. It's just humans enjoying being humans. And actually I remember one line from it, the, the, the villain there comes in, And uh, I'm just actually forgetting the villain's name now, but I say something like, ah, Jack, they tell me you got the brush. And the villain goes, dirty rats, here, take it back. My hairbrush, really, Winterbottom? Because the brush is the tail from the hunting. And that's what I, you know, I was congratulating him for winning the hunt, but he'd actually stolen my hairbrush. And so you had this period... (laughs) contextualised pun joke all happening and there I was with talcum powder in my hair, big top hat, the whole thing, and it was joyful. However, I have digressed. Let's get back to these scattered pieces. Yeah, but that was already an interesting combination of scattered pieces. There was at least two kinds of subtext going on. Interplay between people, which suggests it's telling you something about social relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's cultural context, so maybe works well in a time and place, maybe can transcend time and place, which is always an interesting question as we get to the point where we can watch or listen to nearly anything on our iPhones. Suddenly anything ever made can be put back to back in just the most amazing kaleidoscope where the individual bits will be perceived differently depending on what was before them and what was after. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. This is actually, I, I can't wait to listen back to your commentary on this later to help me <laughs> put those pieces back in. There are probably two other little quick things to get off my chest in case I forget them because to come back to this scattered pieces, there are two teachers who are absolutely formative to drawing me into an appreciation of the arts and it was a year nine teacher, Carol Fagan, at Unley High. We were doing Twelfth Night 
by Shakespeare as a class production. And I had the biggest crush on her you could ever imagine. That probably plays some sort of role in my engagement during those lessons. Yeah, but come on, if you've got hormones going crazy at the same time you're learning about the arts and those two things become combined. Oh, they are, and that is two all one and the same. Two kinds of endorphins simultaneously. Yes. That means addiction for life. We'll think about what evolutionary scientists might think about yeah. the role of art later. But uh, there I was. Uh, we just had this lovely vibe going and she just drew me into an appreciation. And that was joyful. That's a comedy. And then in year 11, we'd moved and I was at Woodville High School and Mr. D'Souza was our English teacher and he was taking us through Richard III, a deep, dark, dark. tragedy yeah. from Shakespeare, which he referred to as Dick the Turd, <laughs> which, which was joyful. Which is great for year 11s. And I, I just remember... So the, the two things that come from this is both of those teachers gave me the confidence to be myself. When I'd moved to a brand new school at year 11, I went into my shell and I clearly remember term one, parent-teacher night, he was talking to my parents and he said, Sorry. I didn't realise how deeply. Uh, he just said, um, there is something lurking in that young man that hasn't been released yet, but I think it's coming soon. Wow, what a big thing to say about someone who's just had their life turned upside down, new school, new people, feeling like no shell is going to be big enough to hide in. And someone involved in the arts is telling you, hey, kid, mm. there's all this stuff going on and you just got to find a way to open the tap up and let it out. Yeah. So both those teachers, their generosity of, of that encouragement was always going to be, I didn't, it's just fundamental to me. But the other thing they both taught me is you hold plays like Shakespeare and all sorts of theatre where there's intense dialogue. You hold it loosely. This is the scattered things on the table again. I find that if you keep trying to hold on to every single phrase, you get so caught up in that that you miss the whole. And by holding loosely, letting it flow, letting the play flow, you will pick up enough as you go through and come at the end with great enjoyment. And then the next time you experience it, you'll pick up some of the other pieces. And I think for me, what's helped me enjoy theatre of all sorts is being able to be loosely there in that orbit, like those pieces scattered on the table, not worried about where each piece goes, but enjoying this mass and knowing all the pieces are there for a reason. But they will be formed in different ways and it will gradually be revealed over and over again with the passing of time. That's yeah. the beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting the way you describe it. Tim and I were talking about something similar yesterday. I'm seriously thinking about starting to play guitar again after not playing for 25 years. And one of the things I said to Tim yesterday, you know, I asked him a question. I said, have you ever heard a guitarist describe another guitarist as a mountain climber? And he goes, no. I'm like, okay, what it means is someone who's trying so hard to get technically better to do these incredibly complex things. And they, you know, climb a great height thinking that at the top of it, they'll get to the top of the mountain and they'll be a good musician but there's no link between being a mountain climber and being a good musician. 
You can have all the technical skills under the sun and you can use them all to climb immense heights. But if you don't make a piece of music out of it, you're just a mountain climber. And I gave him permission yesterday that if I go down the mountain climber path, which is a real danger with my perfectionist brain and my ego about doing things well, to just go stop being a mountain climber and give me a reason to stop dead and remember to actually just enjoy playing the bloody guitar. That is so important to remember in the arts because we, those of us who dwell in artistic circles can get up ourselves from time to time and get so focused on the technical brilliance and execution that we leave the audience behind and, and there needs to be a payoff of entertainment, even in the most earnest and sincere of work. I remember interviewing, oh, and I, as you'll discover in this podcast, I am terrible with names of <laughs> actors, writers, pieces of work. His name will come to me. He's a young uh, composer here in Adelaide, and he was doing a very avant-garde piece. And I said, here's the thing. I, I've seen lots of avant-garde work, and there's some that's just technically magnificent. And you know... They are scaling those mountains yeah. it, to perfection. But there's no crumbs of enjoyment, no little bits of sugar to give us that energy as the audience, that payoff, that sweet reward. And even Gaslight, the theatre production I saw this week, um, there are long, long, long monologues. Think how long a, a monologue could be and times it by ten. And it's really hard work and the, for the actors commentary in the foyer was aren't those actors amazing how they remember those lines and I put that down as a, a, a misfiring. A technical success that didn't have a human impact. Yes. Yeah. I don't want that to be the legacy of a production. I want the message to have landed, the whole experience to yeah. have been transformative not just, oh, what was because that is the difference going back to the gymnast and the ballerina, I think we were talking before oh, we started. Gymnast and an acrobat, you know. An acrobat tries to make simple things look difficult, and a gymnast tries to make difficult things look simple. Yes. It's not necessarily true, and I'm not having a go there's two professions. It's just how I think a music teacher once described to me, you know, what you should be trying to do. Yeah. You should be trying to make the difficult seem simple. So, there you go. So, I think we need to be honest that the audience needs to be brought along with us, and they do need sucker as they sit there. Well, we need to be able to go, I'm doing this to push technical limits, knowing that it may not connect at a human level, but I will get more facility from doing this to use later to connect. It's yep. okay to separate these things. The thing is to not take for granted that they're the same. And it seems to me this is the biggest problem that all forms of the arts have, as there's more and more information out there and you can be better trained in most disciplines. More and more people are actually highly technically competent at their particular area within the arts. But because our lives are so safe and in so many cases so vanilla, less and less people have anything to say with their technical facility. Well, Now that's the danger of it. Now that danger doesn't have to end bad. We just have to remember that danger. That we've probably got some of the most technically competent artists ever because people are healthy, longer, there's more ways to engage in the arts, there's more ways to be involved, there can be more time put in in a life. 
So there's more ability to get lost in the technical details if we forget that that should be contributing to something more than technical perfection. This to me spans more than just the arts. Oh yeah, it's it's life in general. Like we've overprivileged the cognitive, the think about things, to a potentially dangerous level as a society. If I may, one reflection I have from time to time is, if we went back to the early 1900s, from what I understand, I was not around at that time. Um, just I saw that look. <laughs> um, <laughs> entertainment, music, was. Anyone having a chance to bash out some tunes on a piano, for example, or... Yep, the family concert, because the sun had gone down, there was one kerosene lamp or, or thing, and everyone wanted something yep. to do before they went to sleep. And, and I don't yeah. want to glorify that, because I'm sure there are many nights that were just turgid yeah. and, and dreary, but everyone had a chance to have a, have a go. And then as we became more and more specialised, as big business was able to extract money from it and we have these rarefied examples of artists who now are the ones who hold the baton about what is and what isn't music or acting etc we then become gradually disempowered Mm -hmm. from trying our hand at things ourselves and sport is the same we watch those we watch we don't play music we listen we don't play and art we look at we don't play so the fact that we have this amazing high technical standard, but how many people are involved in an amateur arts form? Like if you're a string player in Adelaide and you're not professional, it will be difficult to find a chamber orchestra to play in. Yeah. You know? And this is sort of the thing, you know, if it's going to connect at a human level and be about shared cultural experience and shared emotional and aesthetic experience, it's a thing of having to put the other people who just want to be there because being there and making art together is amazing. That is the key. I kicked the footy around with my nephew on the weekend. We were just dobbing the punt. No, punting the whatever it is. Whatever you do with the football. Yeah, yeah. you can see that sport's not my domain. But it was great. Was, yeah. It was great fun. And mm. at Christmas, I get the cricket ball out and we have a well, the tennis ball, to be honest. It's and, much safer. And we just have, we laugh we do fitness, and, and of course I've had a lot of involvement with uh, amateur theatre, uh, which I loved. And I did o- often think that if I went professional, if I pursued that, would some of that joy, two things, probably I feared failing, which stops many of us from <laughs> taking things further, and also the fear of not knowing when there's bread coming uh, in, the, <laughs> in the, the, the feast and famine cycle of, of the arts, but also... I would hate to have got to the point where it was drudgery to turn up to rehearsal instead of being something... It was just your day job and you were going through the motions as if it was any other thing where you just put in the technical effort and then go home. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel that two things come from that. We become disempowered when we have this era of specialists and not to decry the beauty they can bring to the world, to watch magnificent test cricketers or, or footy players to, to watch magnificent theatre, listen to those beautiful singing. That's fantastic, but it disempowers us. Mm. At the other end, it also means we become less connected to appreciating that craft and so we lose some of the literacy for fully enjoying these experiences. Mm. Hence, you've got your... Ignorant armchair yeah, critics. Yeah, armchair critics because they've got 500 CDs think they can tell you about playing the violin. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's part and parcel of the same dilemma. Yeah. If And that's why when I 
nowadays, I'm very lucky to be a, a critic with a, a public podium, thanks to Peter Gers and Samuel Harris on the ABC Smart Arts. And, and I also write reviews, of, obviously, for the Adelaide Show podcast website. I'm haunted by not wanting to be that armchair critic. I try to come with generosity of understanding, of deep appreciation for all the work that goes into even the biggest lemon. Yeah, but that's the thing of having been an amateur and you know, all the interesting things you've done in radio and all the things you do now with marketing and media. You've got that appreciation of so many different aspects that the generosity comes through because you understand how hard it is to do the amateur version let alone to have the guts to say, this is going to be my full-time gig and I'm going to risk everything on making this work. Yeah. And amateurs understand professionals in a really important way because this is another thing that is always in danger with very professional arts, that being awed by very professional arts is great, but we should also be inspired to be enthusiastic amateurs by it. It should make us want to go out and have a go. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And nothing brought me greater joy. My 10-year-old, when she was nine, no, when she was eight, thereabouts, for drama, she had to learn a piece, a monologue. And she came home, what, what should we do, Dad? And she was looking through some bits and pieces. And I said, oh, you know what we should do? You should do Puck's epilogue from Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, if we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, etc. Beautiful, magnificent piece. Anyway, she went to school the next day, note came back. We do not do Shakespeare until year seven, and it's your daughter who is doing drama, not you. Um, and But she was left with the decision to make, and she chose Puck's epilogue. She did it anyway, and she and I have fun every now and then, I'd do it every day if she let me. Uh, we recite it together, and it's absolutely the most exquisite joy to do that. Yeah. And it's nice that she was able to stick it to the man uh, and and go with <laughs> and it. find hope. a way to connect with her dad yeah, in uh, the beginning of the intellectual way that she will as she becomes a grown up. Yeah, and she, you know, and she is. It's amazing the nuances of life that children understand. And then through exposure to drama and, and the schooling, learning how to then express those. I mean, the Father's Day cards I got from the girls were just absolutely humbling with the level of insight and observation and, and emotional load they carried. And that's the thing, you know, the arts at its best, the first time you experience something, you get a little bit. But each time you get something a little bit different. And sometimes they add to a bigger picture and sometimes it contradicts your earlier understanding. And what you're left with is a conundrum that art can be multiple things at once. Mm. And that depending on mood and intellectually what you've been thinking about, you will perceive it differently. Yeah. And that, that's the amazing thing. You can revisit pieces of music your whole life. So for me, it's Shostakovich's second violin concerto. I could listen to that every week for the rest of time wow. and hear something different every time. You know, he wrote it in hospital, very sick. The hospital was under quarantine and they didn't know why. I think it was because of an influenza outbreak you know, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, wherever he was. He was convinced he was going to die and he got the bare bones of the concerto out in three or four days. <gasps> so it's this incredible late concerto by Shostakovich. Wow. That there's so much going on. 
if you play it properly, the violin is literally on the edge of being out of control in the third movement. You're pushing the limits of incredible technique so far that the bow is probably starting to skid. Intonation is hanging on, but only just. To be played well, someone has to have the courage to go, actually, if you can play it even faster and harder and with more almost insane dynamics, go there. So there's always something new in how people play it. Can they go you know, where the composer wanted it? And so the last two Russian violinists who got to play it with Shostakovich before he died were Dmitry Sitkovetsky and Lydia Mordkovich. And I'm convinced no one's really played it as well as them since because no one's had the courage to go, I've got the permission of the composer to go crazy in the final movement. Oh my, this is dangerous information because that same daughter is also learning violin at the moment. So when she comes home with what the... <laughs> <laughs> like, if she wants a number one fan who'll sit in the front row with a cigarette lighter waving it, I will come along and be totally supportive. <laughs> wow. I mean, we've, we've been using language, I think, that has been that has allowed it to be relatively... Oh, has, has allowed what we're getting out of the arts to be relativistic. Relative. We've used language, I think, that is ambiguous enough that people are allowed to get out what they want from it or, or, or just innately do. But there's also language that we've been using that has described how um, kind of deep and natural all of, all of this is. There's a word that Steve uses that I uh, really want to reintroduce into my lexicon, which is nourishing. And that is, a, I think, a nice way to describe the consumption and participation in, in kind of what we're talking about, whether it be music yeah. or, or acting or comedy or um, Yeah, the, the form doesn't generally. matter. The art should be nourishing. Mm. And it, in that word, again, is ambiguous enough that you can get out what I guess even you put in or get out what you will, which you know, might be emotional and we've kind of we've, we've seen that here and, or it may even just be the pure joy of entertainment. Yeah. I'm, mm, thank you. I obviously concur because I, I use that language a lot because it is deeply nourishing mm. to be involved in or, or whether as an observer or participant in all sorts of things, but especially the arts. And I'm torn by that, Tim, because I'm haunted by John Stuart Mill, the great utilitarian, who said we shouldn't discriminate between pushpin or poetry, whether you do crass gambling games on the street or deep poetry, if it brings joy, it should be... You know, but there's joy in nourishing of different things. Oh, uh, they're in the same... No, they're not. Ooh, see, no. I, I, see I, I can't stand Mills, so I've thought about this stuff before. Okay. Like, <laughs> J.S. Mill, to my mind, was one of the smartest people who wrote stupid stuff. <laughs> so, you know, joy, again, is very individualistic. But I think the thing, if we say to, that something nourishing is not just going to be nourishing for you, but in you engaging with it, you're going to quite possibly get to engage with someone else in it. And no one's going to come off having lost anything by both people being nourished. Whereas if it's a card game on the street, someone loses. Okay. So there's, there's to me, an immediate <laughs> distinction. Yeah, logical. Yeah, Something distinction. that nourishes, can't, I can't win and you lose as a consequence of the activity. Mm. I feel that's a very literal Well, it's a, it's a place to give you something to run with. Yes, well, it, to me it's a narrow band yeah, approach of is. trying to interpret that because, and I don't want to be hypocritical in trying to not... <laughs> 
be yeah, discriminatory really on the yeah, But let's go to our earlier kind of, thing. Hmm. From watching it, would you then get up and go and have a go at something? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Like if it's good art, yes. does it stimulate you to go, I want to be an amateur whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> juggler, singer, you know, instrumentalist, fire eater, whatever, probably not an amateur fire eater. I'm guessing fire eating should be for professionals. <laughs> so the inspiration is inspiration to express, right? Yeah, yes. uh, and I think that's what it needs to be, inspiration to express. And yeah. I want to wind back using Australia's Got Talent as an example there, an exemplar, because this is where I do need to concede the point to David, because it is itself a package of the most cynical, disempowering yes. prostitution of art, because on one hand... It's forcing, well, not forcing, it's giving an avenue, dangling hopes and dreams in front of people who want to be at the upper echelon. But they then have to perform songs that have been stylized by people who have got all that support around them and a harsh, dry, Mm. critical, and where they make missteps, they then get lauded, uh, sort of, put out there Mm. for ridicule. One of my Mm. daughters was showing me worst auditions ever there's on youtube yeah. these oh, yeah. same shows absolute cynicism mm. and so i take that back uh maybe i disagree with john stuart mule maybe there's degrees of nuance in that because well, yeah. the point though intention's is, not pure but the, the the point though is similar to that of the mighty ducks you know the, the point isn't about winning or losing it's about having fun right it's, <laughs> it's more than it, it's the, sort of more than having fun so let's take another tv show because it's good because it gives people an easy way to connect something like the voice mm-hmm. where okay all those people are being paid at some point in their career to come and sit and coach but yeah. at the absolute minimum if you get picked to be on the the little team of one of these star singers and you get coached for a period of time by them mm-hmm. whether you get nothing more than that wow You've just got an insight into what it is to be at that next level, to have had that much experience, to sing every day, to be under pressure every day, and even just by osmosis, to get an insight into that level that may be the inspiration you need to go further. Absolutely. That is a beautiful insight because it wouldn't be just the one-to-one teaching of scale, but it is being around that person, watching how they react, watching how they navigate. And in fact... Before the show last night at the time of recording Gaslight, uh, I saw Martha Lott at the hotel next door having dinner. She was the understudy for the four female characters in that play. This is a play in which there are monologues that stretch for, I don't know how many pages would be in the script, but it would be in the dozens monologue. And she had to have them down pat for all four. And that sort of... Commitment. Commitment, discipline, professional ability. It would have been wonderful to have been watching how she prepares to do that, let alone the actors who are performing the roles. Yeah. It's just magnificent. And so you th- and this is the joy that comes and those abilities come to do that when it is a professional production, because I'm not sure that at amateur level when we're trying to grab bits and pieces of time amid trying to earn a crust, that you could go the whole hog on something like this. And so there is that tension again. Interesting you say that because a couple of years ago the Theatre Guild did the Greek play uh, Media, and I can't remember who wrote Media. We can always put it in the notes. But you know, 90% of it is the actress playing Media. 
you know, the, it is probably the the biggest single part for a single person I've ever heard in a play. So this was someone probably 2021 20, at uni, and it was a brand new translation by one of the classics, yep. PhDs or master's students. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she was even using an earlier version where there were notes. Yeah, she was using a brand new version by a young classics scholar, and I'm like, and it ran for three nights. <laughs> wow, I take it back. Um, it- <laughs> Because I, I have to remember, there is a fire burning in you when you're involved in, in arts, especially at the amateur level. I mean, if I just, for one moment, get a little self-indulgent, when I did my early amateur theatre at La Mama Theatre, God bless its soul, uh, it used to be downstairs on, on Port Road uh, in a cellar. So I was working at 5MU at Murray Bridge. I was working from 5am to 5pm, doing news, morning talk, preparing news, reading ads, and then I would hop in the car, I would come down the freeway, go to rehearsals from 6, 6.30 till 10, hop back in that car, head back and do it again. And payment, zit, you know, plus petrol costs, all that, but I didn't care because... I was in a, a troupe of people who I came to see were just amazing. Yeah. People like Chris Drummond, who's now at Brink Theatre, and uh, and Andy Packer, who's deep. You know, all these great people, mm. they were all studying at uni. I was the hack who was just driven by pure... I was just driven. I just had to be there. There was mm. this... Anyway, we did a play called Fate of a Cockroach. I hoped you were going to talk about this. Yeah, this was this is the most joyful memory of my life. It was uh, at the time of the first Gulf War, and I was uh, on Five MU and doing my talk show. If you, anyone who lived through that will probably remember that it went good guys, bad guys, really quickly. Anyone from the Middle East was evil uh, in the media narrative and not to be trusted. Anyone from the West was good. And I had to do my show with the BBC in one ear while my show in the other. And should any breaking news happen, we'd cross over to it to see if we're dropping more bombs or or whatever was going on for that drama. And gnawing at me was this understanding that it can't be as black and white as that. There must be more nuance. Anyway, I I went to holiday over in Perth with uh, my sister, my eldest sister, and went into a bookshop in Fremantle, and there was a book I saw in the spine, second-hand bookshop, Fate of a Cockroach. And when you see a title like that, you have to take it off the shelf. And I had a look. It was an olive green cover, uh, tatty, dog-eared. I had a look at it, and it was a play by Tufik al-Hakim, an Egyptian playwright. And what the play was, very briefly, the synopsis, is there's a king and a queen cockroach, there's a minister cockroach and, and a few other you know, symbolic cockroach characters. Flunkies. Sorry? Cockroach flunkies. Yes. <laughs> there was a, a priest, uh, a minister, and a, a savant. And the first act is those cockroach characters interplaying with each other. And at the end of the act, the king and the queen disappear back into the bath, this huge bath they disappear into. We open act two, and all the same actors play, instead of, king and queen, husband and wife, and minister, savant, etc. And so we all become humans doing the same roles as the cockroach. And in the opening scene, I believe the, the wife goes in and goes, ah, and shrieks because there's cockroaches in the bath, which she stamps on and kills. And so both sets of beings have the same interplay. And what Tufik al-Hakim was doing was 
critiquing the royal family, the monarchy, in a way that wouldn't get him executed. And so we have this deep insight into very clever satire and comedy from the culture that's meant to be just bad guys. And you know what? They had all the same sophistication. How ignorant is this to be saying this? But it's how we felt. The same sophistication, much more deep history of expression and... There, it was just a wonderful thing to discover. The La Mama Troupe put it on. Uh, I think even Peter Gers gave us a good review for that. And it was our little way of saying, amid this rush to good guys and bad guys, guess what? We're all human. and There's a commonality yes. in human experience. And that's yeah. tapped into two more important things. Okay. That ambiguity is normal and art should show that. And it should help us understand the human condition in all its diversity there's a surprising amount of similarity yes you are just touching on the most important thing or one of the most important things for me of great theater great arts is it holds a mirror up to ourselves it doesn't always teach us new things it reminds us of things forgotten and it just gives us that time for reflection it can do more it can push us further but that That's alone is a gift. Does that. Yeah, even if it just makes us reflect and go, hang on, I was doing that thoughtlessly. How about I do it thoughtfully? Yes. That alone can be enough to get out of a page of poetry, a chapter in a book, yeah. you know, a song. doesn't matter what the form is. And, and some of that realisation can come through, I, I would imagine, quite unconsciously. It doesn't necessarily need to You don't to need exactly to know why you know it. You just need to know you're yeah, going to do the happened. next thing differently. Your unconscious has changed gear slightly. And you go, well, I like that gear change. Mm. Oh, it came from whatever I was reading or whatever I was watching or listening to. Oh, cool. Can yes. I change gear slightly? Is Please that do. okay? I have a little bit of a problem, and I used the word relativistic earlier, and I don't like that I did that because I have a particular struggle with avant-garde arts, particularly music and film, where... I disengage <laughs> almost completely and I find it really difficult to find that commonality and, and find what it is in this other person's expression that I f- have com- yeah, common experience with or, or anything in common with. And I, I, I don't know whether there is an answer to that and whether, that just, whether that's only ever going to appeal to a certain group of people because obviously it, it does, ends up being quite niche, all this avant-garde stuff. You listen to especially really experimental stuff happening with synthesizers in the 70s and 60s or what 70s probably. I'm not even sure when they were invented, so that's probably a really ignorant statement. But you know, we go into avant-garde film like Stan Breckage or whatever and you know these things tend to inspire film 40 years later, but it doesn't uh, doesn't entertain me in the same way and I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to don't know how to reckon with that in in the context of what we've just been talking about. My normal response to stuff like that is in the particularity they've represented I can't find any universality that I can connect with. Mm. And I'll give it a second try, but I won't give it a third try. Because I've just gone, you know, their particularity is so particular, I can't find a way in. You reminded me of an observation from seeing Gaslight. So Gaslight, 1939 play, in which the husband gaslights the wife. He hides things uh, and then 
berates her for not knowing. He's he's making her doubt herself, thinking she's losing her marbles. Her mum, we learn, ended up spending her last years in a madhouse and this threat of sending her there hangs over her. It's horrible. And yet this play itself was really hard. The middle bits, the, the beginning, the end were fantastic. The middle bits got so dry, like driving to Sydney and going through the Hay Plain where it's exactly the same for hours on end. And all that needs is a lot of cutting for the, our modern ear. Okay. Mm. So the point I'm coming to is my review reminded us that if we feel we're leaving the theatre almost as if we've been gaslit into thinking that, oh, I was meant to enjoy that. I thought there was meant to be more, oh, I think I've missed. We need to, and this is, applies to avant-garde theatre in, arts in particular, we have to understand that at that point, the players, the actors, those involved, are pushing the boat out. They are off on a riff to push their craft to an extreme. And it's. I don't think we should feel bad if we're left on the shore because they, ha- they have forgotten us. Mm. Uh, they are not focused on us. They're focused on mm. their art. And I remember from learning communication theory a long time ago, you've got the the sender, the receiver, and the message. Mm. And many people think communication is done, and, and some might think art is, inverted commas, done once the sender has sent the message. But it's not. It's not unless the receiver is primed enough to understand and interpret it, then you might think you've ticked the box, but you haven't. And it's a dangerous way of looking at it because you can go down that postmodern anything is whatever anyone thinks and and that's fine but to me that takes us off the hook a little bit of having the responsibility of the artist of the communicator to deeply have empathy for that audience and try to set things up so that it can be interpreted and well received with some degree of sympathy and harmony so that we have a chance to all move forward together. Mm. Mm. And that's where this idea of nourishing is. We all get something out of it and all feel a bit more inspired and a bit more thoughtful. Yeah. And that that's the thing. If the actors can go to that extreme edge or any artist can go to that extreme edge and other artists appreciate the extreme edge as a way to push where the discipline can go, there's no problem about pulling the rubber band in that direction. But don't assume just because you pulled it in that direction that us, the audience at the other end, will get pulled along with you. We may decide we don't like it and pull the rubber band the other way and the rubber band will break. That is such a clear idea in my mind now. I really appreciate the both of you and <laughs> explaining that. Because oh. at some point the rubber band does snap. Yes. And if I could also just channel my, my dad, who was a priest for many years, <laughs> I'll be the priest of art here. And I am hereby saying, Tim, there were no sins to ever forgive. Enjoy art, enjoy <laughs> not enjoying art, and be at peace within yourself. Except that mm. the highlight could be the beer at intermission. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, except there was no bar open during Yeah, these I know, we're in the midst COVID. of COVID yes. weirdness, but one day <laughs> even this shall pass and we will return to you know, <laughs> beverage in the middle. Yes. But you got to know when you get home and the beverage was the highlight. Mm. Yeah, and look, and it, that wasn't the case last night. There was so much to enjoy. There was still sucker to be had, but yeah, we just got 
left a little bit in the middle. That's all. Do I get to, so? Do I have to perform three hail Marlon Brandos or? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he has to mumble appropriately. <laughs> Marlon Stella. needs to learn. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So a, a particular medium that I get interested in, because I am a big fan of film in particular, we on the podcast can tend to put some forms of art in the waste of time category. <laughs> <laughs> because we've already kind of disparaged it, let's put the um, Australia's Got Talent. Reality TV reality of any TV, form. Yes. <laughs> kind of into the bin here. Be careful. I'm in a reality TV show, by the way. Oh, uh, is this thing on? So I've got to be careful. Ah, yes, of course. Well, no, I'm not putting it all out there, uh, but the ones that are particularly based on shame, those are the ones that are going in the bin. Well, there's, not, there's nothing nourishing in them, and it's like, am I inspired to do anything at the end of this other than eat another pizza? Yeah. No. We'll yeah. do something else. Sorry, Tim, we are listening to oh, your no, question. No, no, totally yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, I th- there is something about that that doesn't seem constructive, let's say. And when, and when in the podcast and we, you know, sometimes have a bit of a self-help tangent to us, that those are the kinds of things that get left behind in light of, you know, more productive or more nourishing endeavours, more nourishing endeavours. But I, as someone who particularly likes film and always thinking about this kind of tension where I am nervous about putting a film on if I end up feeling like it's a waste of time later. And I really like Christopher Nolan is a, is a particular director I like. I really love all of his films. I have a particular hot take where I think he's getting worse with every film. But <laughs> I, I really enjoy sitting down and, and, and kind of being told a story in, in kind of non-traditional ways or being uh, kind of exposed to character developments and ideas and things through through storytelling and 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 film and i that it doesn't happen it, it's not quite as um uh, in, inspiring as as theater in the sense that you can't get involved in film in the same ways that you can with theater at least in the amateur at least in a communal way but i i i struggle sometimes to to articulate why it is important because I know inherently I really want to make sure that that's an Im- important thing that I, but I, I, I struggle to articulate why having an interest in film or even video games, which can border that art or more and more with yeah. the narrative mm. and doing them collectively. Mm. They're more and more tapping into the territory that, you know, theater of film I would think, have once yeah. held. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I struggle to articulate for myself why, why that can be an important uh, here's a Christopher Nolan reference. Tenet, I guess. <laughs> Tenet of nourishing endeavours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See if I understand mm. the question. Sure. Point. Yeah, I, I framed it strangely. So, Theatre enjoyed en masse in company. Mm-hmm. Film, not quite as communal. And yet you hold that art form in high esteem, mm. hoping that each film you view will be a profound experience that will be as lasting as theatre. Is that what I, you're... I can't, yeah, effectively, yes. Okay. Gee, I love thinking about this. I think all art forms have strengths and weaknesses compared to each other. There mm-hmm. are places where they play to natural strengths they've got. One of the joys of theatre, and I'm pretty sure this came in a, uh, through a, a no-strings-attached performance, um, where at the opening they made the point 
that there's something very special happening when an audience sits in the same theatre together. Our breathing starts to become in the same time. Our heartbeats synchronise. We there it, There is something visceral about being in that room. Now, this might happen in a cinema, but to a lesser extent, because there aren't people at the other end. It's, it's a projection on a screen. But what theatre can bring is... A, lots of retakes to get it right, much deeper uh, soundscaping and visual effects to bring home. So film or theatre? Film now. Film Film can take us to places that's nigh impossible for theatre to do with escapism for a a well-crafted blockbuster Mm. or because you can get so close with that camera for those intimate, poignant moments in film of absolute quiet, which I actually prefer watching alone. I'm horrible to watch films with. I don't like people talking when a film is playing. Mm, I don't too. like missing one moment mm, of mm. the opening credit. Me I too. Closing credits I can mm. give and take. But that, that to set the scene of we are now in the this Wizard of Oz. mode. Yes, there's Be, a transition. Yeah. Mm. There's a transition. Yep. So... And I feel that weight of hoping that it's going to be a profound experience too. Uh, and but not all not all movies set out to do that. Mm. But when they do it, they can do it so well, and they can play to those strengths. And they, I think, they both can have. I hope that this is a valuable answer of some sort. But I, I think they both can bring great joy mm. to the experience and profundity, but just with different. There's a, there's a difference in how they can do it mm. um, and it's at a holistic level. Mm, mm, mm. I wonder if part of what's happening too is, you know, until maybe even 20 years ago, you looked forward to going to the cinema because of the size of the screen, the, you know, the quality of the image, the quality of the sound. Mm-hmm. Whereas now at home you can have as good an image, as good or better sound because you can have it tailored to the one seat you're sitting in. Yeah. And you can run any film you like. So like anything, if you have pizza once a week, awesome. If you had pizza every day, how long before you just get dulled to pizza? Yeah. And I wonder if film, because I think this has happened with music, as much as the iPod was amazing and our phones now being able to have you know gigabytes of music on them is amazing, it is also, I'm aware with me, reduced my appreciation for individual pieces of music. Because everything's there whenever I want it. And my AirPods for my iPhone are okay, but they're not great. Mm. What we have missed is the mediator. Yes. So now that everything's everywhere all the time, whether it's news or music or films or TV shows, we have to do the curation for ourselves Mm. and we miss some of those surprises that get thrown to us. And the anticipation. I reckon the anticipation is huge. Oh, yes. one of the joys of I lived in Budapest for a couple of years, uh, speaking almost no Hungarian. It was such a difficult. To my defence, it is one of the most difficult languages in the world, and I got what they called Konyanyev, which is kitchen language. That's the level I got to. But the cinema near us would play films in English occasionally, and so this is that anticipation. Mm. And one of Vim Vendors was just an amazing director who, if you haven't seen some of his films like Calendar, etc., they're just glorious. And the one that uh, called Until the End of the World does what only cinema can really do. 
it tracks this amazing story. The actual director's cut runs three and a half hours and every minute was just joy as this man develops a machine that can record dreams and he wants to record the final dreams of his mum who's dying or his father. And this is story with Sam Newton. It goes all over. It goes to Russia. It goes to England. It comes to the centre of Australia. You've got a music sound bed. Uh, it was made in... 1990 and all the artists like Nick Cave etc were asked to write songs like they think they would be writing in 10 years from now Lou Reed you know all that it's just joyful so you've got different visual landscapes a story that is fantastical but still poignant I still remember tears in streaming down my face at some point that is cinema doing something that only cinema can? And whether that was an... I was watching it at a cinema, but I might as well have been watching it at home because of the language barrier. I was just mm-hmm. lost in my own little world. And I think it can still thrive there and be transformative. I can't wait to watch it again. I've only mm-hmm. watched it twice in my life. It's really hard to get a copy of these days. But there was that joy of that someone had given me a limited choice and I, I seized it. Maybe that's mm. part of the magic of it too, yeah. let alone the storytelling. Like the, uh, there's a film called The Man Who Wasn't There. It's, in my opinion, probably the best Billy Bob Thornton movie. And it's the only time I've ever gone to the movies, walked out, gone and had a wee, got another thing of popcorn and gone straight back in. Wow. That's cool. Mm. Because you don't need to see it. It's just so amazing, the performances. It's just as a movie to listen to, it's so amazing. And his role in it is this barber whose life is sort of connected to everyone around him, but he doesn't feel his life has any meaning, mm. and yet it's connected to everyone around him. So that's very similar to uh, what we were talking about last week, The Stranger. Yeah, yeah, with Luke, yeah. Just two very quick things about theatre to give it its due. Modern theatre, I've seen a lot of kids' theatre last year, it has reached this really high watermark where they can actually use very clever set design and mechanics to create vivid canvases that match what you can do with film. But at the same time, it can have a strength where you've got just a bare board, Mm. a single light, a single actor, and they work their heart out to draw you into a world. And it's just beautiful. And, And films would struggle with that. Oh, absolutely. Mm, the it, camera it's, just, it's a narrow, it's yeah. kind of a narrow band. The camera doesn't give you a choice where you go. Mm. Yeah, whereas theatre, that person has to draw you in. Because you can still decide to look and see what other people are doing. Mm. You, know, you can decide to people watch or people listen. So, yeah, that thing of, yeah, maybe that's another thing sometimes that's a problem with film and TV. You know if it's made it to air, you know, everything turned out all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's no risk you can't perceive any risk. And humans love novelty. So with novelty normally comes some degree of risk. It's also probably less effort, you know. It's it's probably made, you know, the whole mise-en-scene, like everything within that camera, is designed so that the interpretation, if we're talking about communications, is as, as universal and sort of easy as possible. It's clearly defined because it has to, to take out to ambiguity. everyone. Where yeah. it, in theatre, you're kind of in charge of where the camera is. And it's a little bit more challenging to interpret. Mm. Mm. And you get cues from those around you as to whether that was good or not. Was yeah. I meant to laugh? Yeah. Yeah. How are they relate, you know, How are the performers relating to each other? And that dynamic tension is then going to alter the flow of how the rest 
of the performance goes. And that's the joy of doing stand-up, which could be the lowest of the arts in some way. Which, and the highest. Which and explains how we first met <laughs> at the uh, Adelaide Podcast Festival. That's where right. Where you did a fat cat joke <laughs> and I did a variant of it and people actually laughed. I thought, I just did a joke with a microphone on a stage. How the heck did I do that? <laughs> yeah, and that's where you need those social cues yeah, precisely. to work in your favour. I can run with this gag because that gag worked with this audience. Yeah. And Steve did the gag in a very open-ended way where whatever I did to it, I could just take it that next weird level. Exactly. And it worked. But couldn't plan for that to happen, I don't think. If I can just insert a life skill that comes from theatre that I think is what sets humankind up for a great future if we can embrace it. And that's I did theatre sports for many years. In fact, could I just for one moment say my Mm. team in 1996 won the theatre sports championships of the the Royalty Theatre the ideal husbands we were called, three guys and one girl. And it was just fantastic, fantastic fun. And Michael Shanahan, who now works with me at Talked About Marketing, was my theatre director back then. And he drilled into us, yes and. Yeah. So when an idea gets propped up in front of you, you don't block it. You don't say no, but you say yes and. Whatever comes at you, you need to accept and then move on. And this taps into some of the philosophy that you two go on and on and on about thankfully week in week out uh what what do you call those people the, the ones who uh would go through hardship on stoics per- yes yeah, stoics yeah practice for their worst day yeah i, yeah, I think meditation of evil yes and is mm. a lovely mm. pigeon pair with that approach to life because you have to accept what's coming mm. and build from what you have. And, in fact, our whole world has been going through this stoicism uh, training course with COVID this year mm. where we've had to imagine what would it be like if we couldn't do all these things? Well, guess what? We're having a safe taste of it at the yep. moment. We're in the and phase. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's happened. And what are we going to do with it? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I hope we're better for it. And I just think I see people in work and running businesses who don't have that dynamism mm. of being able to say yes and to things. And I, I fear their lives are impoverished and their decisions are impoverished as a result. It's, a, it's such a beautiful concept that I see reiterated in many ways and I like that because it can become relevant to many people. And funnily enough, one thing I saw as a sticker in a store window walking to the studio this morning was a quote I, I i must admit i can't remember who said it but i remembered the quote which was life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass it's about learning to dance in the rain yeah Hallelujah. i like it mm. that's a good and it's relatively arts focused well because we all have the <laughs> cultural knowledge of listening to singing in the rain yes and you guys watching the cool dance scene <laughs> With that, I think uh, this has been a very fruitful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's helped me justify my interests. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure our listeners will find the same. With that, thank you very much, Steve Davis. I'd like to open the floor for you to spruik the Adelaide show, which we love and I know our listeners would have a um, a shared interest in if they're enjoying this. Yes, Steve, before you spruik, I'll spruik. Listeners, listen to Steve. (laughs) 
Well, it's, look, it's lovely. The Adelaide Show podcast is my second favourite podcast after Blind Insights. <laughs> and we didn't pay him. He's just really nice to us all the time. Oh, yeah. And and it's it's meant with pure intention because what you guys do is a gift to all of us and it is, it's in, in harmony with what arts can do for us too. Uh, so the Adelaide Show podcast, we put South Australian passion on centre stage. I just find ways to connect and have conversations with different South Aussies who are passionately engaged in some sort of endeavour. And um, I'd like to think that we, we don't have a tabloid-style podcast. It's a, a chance to have a mindful conversation about things and learn things that you wouldn't normally go out to seek. There are so many topics we've covered because I do say to people, we it's very eclectic, our show. So don't dive in and just listen to the last podcast. Have a look at them and see if one resonates with you. But at the same time, maybe try one that just you think I am not going to be interested at at all because it's fascinating how every time we sit and talk to people, we uncover a way to enter their world and deepen our understanding. I mean, the man who did the book on the history of rabbits in Australia for crying out loud, it was the most fascinating insight into the early stages of our uh, the white uh, Western uh, settlement within or occupation, whichever you like to to take of, of Australia, and we get these insights into that part of our history through the focus of the rabbit. I mean, how amazing is that? kitchen gardens to you know, police and military you name it we we cover it and be an absolute joy if anyone found an enjoyment in what we do and the big thing is like us it's all about being curious and working on the assumption that everything could be interesting and everyone who does something does it because they care about it so let them show their passion and the other podcast I do is called the School of Hard Knock Knocks podcast where we actually spoke, speak to comedians about peeping behind the curtain about what makes them tick and that's fascinating too there is actually depth in that art that we disparaged earlier and i'm part of it i do my stand up from time to time well i think uh, you've established yourself steve as our, our resident cultural educator because i think really you you would be the best example of anything well, that's resembles point, that. an yeah. exemplar it's far yeah. easier to listen to someone who's living what they're saying mm. So you're going to be our living arts guy. Oh, my goodness. Just very cultured. But uh, thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. Absolute pleasure. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, audience. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.